names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 71, Rebel Without a Cause. I'm Teresa. I'm Gumby. And this is going to be our first interview of anyone outside of ourselves. <laughs> so we decided to uh, do an interview and, and put the feelers out there to see who would uh, respond first. And Gumby asked his mom, and she said yes. And uh, Gumby's mom is a very sweet woman. She's got a lot of cool uh, stories from her past, and they are at least somewhat escaping society related. Um, and my mom is a huge introvert, so like getting an interview out of her is sort of like a Sasquatch sighting. So it's pretty <laughs> unique. Yeah, so I was really proud of Nancy Gumby's mom for uh, for stepping up and doing this. And um, God, I don't know if there's anything else I really need to say other than uh, I don't know, Gumby, anything. I got a couple things. Uh, why interview my mom? For one thing, I've mentioned her a lot, and uh, as you'll see in the interview, she's got a lot of stories to share, a lot of unique experiences that I thought would be <laughs> kind of related to our Escaping Society podcast. And uh, why Teresa? Um, I didn't want to interview my own mom because we've got our, you know, as you might imagine with your own parents, our own like dynamics. You know, she'd say something sarcastic, I'd get pissed off. It just, it wouldn't be a good interview. <laughs> But uh, Teresa has a pretty good rapport with my mom, and a lot of the stories are fresher for her. So, um, yeah, I thought Teresa did a really awesome job with this interview, and um, we're excited to share it. It's uh, it's new ground for us. Yeah, and uh, stay tuned in future seasons. We're going to maybe do some some other interviews. Yeah, we've already got two more recorded for next season. So, yeah, I think with that, we can go ahead and get started. Enjoy. Enjoy. Hey, Nancy. <laughs> We're recording. <laughs> How are you doing this morning? I'm doing okay. I wanted to ask you some questions about your life as well as maybe my first question just to kind of break the ice about Gumby. Okay. So what was Gumby like as a child? And what do you think led him to want to be a hobo at such a young age? Because you're his mom, so, <laughs> I mean, you probably picked up on some things. Maybe there were some stories or something that happened that he was like, I want to be a hobo. No, I don't remember him ever saying he wanted to be a hobo. Um, he was extremely... <laughs> entertaining as a child <laughs> I remember I could never you know get mad at him because he'd always make me laugh <laughs> like what like what type of things would he do that would make you laugh well like I mean if he did well like one time we gave him a BB gun uh-huh when he was pretty young and he shot the window out of the car oh my god and <laughs> I, you know, instead of trying to punish him or anything, he stuck a book or something down the back of his pants, and I was going to spank him. But I started, <laughs> I started laughing so hard. That was the end of that. He was trying to protect his butt? 
Either that or he was trying to make me laugh. I don't know. He knew he, knew he, could, he could make me laugh a lot. Was there anything, I mean, the way Gumby says, you know, like he, he wanted to be a hobo, like, did you notice any tendencies, like, he always talks about, like, his schoolwork or just, like, kind of being, I don't know, not interested in going to school anymore? Well, I know, <clears throat> I know when he was, like, in the ninth grade, I think, mm-hmm. he just totally vegged out from school. <laughs> I mean, he stopped going to classes. Um, what I'm thinking is maybe his dad and I talked about hitchhiking across the country. Mm-hmm. I don't remember how much of that we actually talked to him about. But he, that might have got him interested in hitchhiking and hoboing. Yeah. And I know that um, both his dad and I were into nature a lot, especially his dad. He'd take us for nature walks to find praying mantis cocoons and snakes and <laughs> different things. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, I don't know, maybe it, it just kind of... Well, my uncle, for me, was kind of the influence for wanting to travel and, um, even living out of a truck. Cause my uncle did that during the summer. So I could mm-hmm. see where stories of hitchhiking and, and all sorts of adventures across the country could influence, especially a young boy. Yeah. Um, so in our episode that we did about the dog, Sherlock, um, Gumby told some details that he knows probably from the stories that you had about hitchhiking across the country, but what other details can you share? Like, you can just tell us a story that maybe you told him about hitchhiking, or as you called it, catching rides <laughs> across the country, um, that still stand out to you. And I would also be curious as to how you guys, like, bathed, went to the bathroom. I mean, not, like, how you went to the bathroom, but, like, what did that look like as far... Okay, that doesn't sound any better. <laughs> what, like, what was it like back then? And maybe, like, if you could even tell us the like time frame of this happening because we just were hitchhiking a couple years ago just to see like if there's any differences um <clears throat> I don't know I don't remember a lot of details during that time we hitchhiked back from California and we had and you were going to where New Hampshire. Oh, wow. So that really was like completely country and up north. Um, But I was four and a half months pregnant at the time. Oh, my God. So I was having morning sickness a lot. And we had a dog crate for our dog and two suitcases. And we were trying to catch rides with this. So... For long periods of time, I remember, we had a hard time getting rides. And then my husband, he had me get up by the side of the road on the highway (laughs) and stand there by myself until somebody would stop. Were you visibly pregnant or was it still like kind of small? It was kind of small. I mean, I wasn't huge. But still, a woman with a dog and a suitcase is... I'm not sure I had the dog in the suitcase oh up my there God. with me. <laughs> and so when somebody would stop, and then my husband would come sneak it out there oh, with man. everything else. 
And sometimes people would, you know, pull off. <laughs> wow. But I, I've always been really self-conscious. So I, that was like almost torture for me. Yeah, because, I mean, it's like scheming. Yeah, and I didn't like that at all. But, um, we'd stop, you know, if we came across any place that had a service station or some place with a little bathroom, that's how we'd clean up the best we could and use the bathroom. Um, what about eating? <laughs> well, the only... Well, I remember a lot of um, people would stop and pick us up, and they'd give us snacks. Oh. Or, you know, that was really nice. We ran across a lot of nice people. But also, um, one time we were near a Kentucky Fried Chicken, and my husband went across the highway and went through their trash (laughs) and also asked, you know, went up and asked somebody if he could have their leftovers or whatever. Yeah. Because um, I guess he told them I was pregnant and all. And they nicely gave him a box of chicken. But we also had some people that would give us rides that lasted for a couple days Mm -hmm. or more. And they'd pay for our meals lots of times. Wow. Or they'd give us, um, you know, like a blanket to keep with us when they dropped us off and things like that. Wow. So being pregnant, I think, really helped the... uh... (laughs) Well, I'm not sure I was that obviously pregnant, so everybody knew it, but I don't know. (laughs) Things seemed to work out. We we ran across a lot of nice people, and that was unexpected to me. Yeah, I think that really made an impression for Gumby, because when we were hitchhiking, he was just like, this is life, you know, even though... Sometimes you do run into, like, questionable rides, yeah. but the good ones far outnumber the ones that are like, okay, maybe we shouldn't get in. What about um, sleeping? Like, if you didn't have a ride that lasted for days, I mean, I'm assuming at that point, well, where did you sleep even then? Like, well, we're talking about, like, a truck ride, like a long-distance ride in a truck? or Yeah, the the longest ride we got was from, like, Somewhere in East Texas, I don't remember exactly where, but he was a, you know, a, a big 18-wheeler. He was moving furniture, mm-hmm. and um, he let us sleep in the back, which was really comfortable because you know, he had those thick uh, pads mm-hmm. for the furniture, and then during oh. <laughs> during the day, um, while my husband was helping him with the moving the furniture which he got paid for wow um he'd let me sleep me and the dog sleep in his little uh compartment you know where he had a little bed mm-hmm. and he fe- he fed us he paid for all our meals he paid my husband he was so nice that was cecil and he was this older guy, didn't have a tooth in his head. <laughs> but he could, I mean, he must have had really, like, alligator jaws or something. He could <laughs> he could eat apples and everything. <laughs> and did you say what year about this was? This was, like, that 1970? Was, that was um, 76. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the same year he, Gumby was born. 
And where else did you sleep, like, if you weren't in the truck or in the back of the truck? We'd sleep <clears throat> along the edge of the road if we could, you know, back enough. Don't want to be right out in the middle of the road. We slept along, I think Gumby said he'd done this, too, um, on highways where you got the overpass. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we used to sleep there, which says <laughs> didn't get much sleep because I always was afraid I'd roll down into the no road. No kidding. Those are often, like, really treacherous places, and it's loud, like the road noise yeah. is really loud. But uh, that's where we slept, basically. My goodness. Um, anything, any other details that you remember from those rides or from just kind of life on the road? I remember I did a lot of cigarette butt finding because <clears throat> my husband was a, <laughs> he, he used to smoke like three or four packs a day. <clears throat> and he, of course, he couldn't afford any cigarettes. So he'd have me trudging up and on the side of the road, picking up. Oh my Cigarette God. butts, which also was terribly embarrassing. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, you know, we just, you know, you do what you got to do. <laughs> None of it was what I'd call pleasant. But, oh, the, oh there was this other woman. Um, and she stopped and she saw we had the dog. And she apparently liked dogs. So she took us to her, as a detour, took us to her house mm -hmm. and gave him some food and then gave us a bag to take with us of food for him. Oh, my gosh. So now you have a bag of dog food to carry. Well, not, <laughs> not a big bag, but, you know, to hold us over for a while. That's nice. Yeah. That was, like I say, there were a lot of nice people, a lot of dickheads, but... <laughs> We didn't have to. We didn't have to mix too much with the dickheads because they'd just pull up and laugh at us and drive off. Yeah, we would get a lot of people that you know. If if you're hitchhiking, you think about people sticking out their thumb, and so people would drive by and stick up their thumb like, "Hey, yeah. good job!" And it's like, okay, that's not what we're doing. <laughs> you know that. I know that. Thanks a lot for nothing. But yeah, that few and far between. Do you have those type of people? And then. Mm. The ones that really stop, like, we had a, um, a woman that she passed us mm. driving, got off of the interstate, because we were actually walking on the interstate where we weren't supposed to, mm. and uh, picked up some bottles of cold water. And I'm not sure if she had any snacks or anything, but she uh, she came back mm. and then picked us up and took us down the road after she gave us the bottles of water. Like, that was amazing. Mm. So many good stories from the road. Yeah. We had, um, before Cecil picked us up, this guy, I think he started in California, but he caught us on the west coast of, well, Texas doesn't really have a west coast, but you know, the western part of Texas. I think it was Amarillo, maybe? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where he, um, what he did was he'd sell grapevines that he had cut. To make furniture. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And he, he's one that gave us a blanket to take with us and gave us a few snacks. But um, 
Yeah, now I kind of lost my track of thought. So there was a, a person, Cecil, that had the furniture truck, and then there was this other guy that was making furniture from Grapevine? Well, I don't think he was making the furniture, but he was selling it, the Grapevine, to somebody who made furniture. Wow, there was a lot of furniture in yeah. your... <laughs> well, at least like. things related to furniture. So, Gumby mentioned the stories about hitchhiking, like I said in that episode. He also mentioned... Uh, a bank robbery? <laughs> and I know, like, well, I know from what Gumby has told me, um, the stories about that, but what is your side of the story? Like, what can you remember of that? Any interesting details? And and there was also um, a time when you got held up. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you want to talk about the bank robbery first or... Or the robberies when you were in the, working in the store? We'll talk about the bank robbery first. Okay. Get that out of the way. <laughs> okay, that was... Uh, let me see, when did that happen? That happened when I was only like a month pregnant or something. Wow. And uh, we were... In Virginia, his dad and I were living in Virginia. We'd been there for a few months. But then we drove back to New Hampshire. And we stayed there for a little ways. This was in winter. And... <laughs> i move this closer. There. You can talk into it. It's fine. And... um Anyway, he, my husband and his friend that he was with, I'm not going to give his name. That's okay. <laughs> um, they were pretty br- big um, drinkers, mm-hmm. so they were almost always drunk or on some kind of dope or whatever, and apparently they thought it would be a good idea to go rob a liquor store. Oh, my God. (laughs) And that was just the two of them. And my husband stuck a gun down his waistband of his pants, and it fell out. And (laughs) so they didn't get much money from that. But then they figured the next best thing was they'd rob a bank. And I don't know how they chose the bank or how they – it was in Maine. And I don't know how they heard about the bank or chose it or came up with this plan or whatever, but they did. They were going to um, hold the, fa- the the bank manager's family. I think he had a wife and a daughter and a son. Oh, my God. In the bank manager's house. Well, a while my husband did this, and his friend went and robbed the bank. And they, you know, called to make sure that his family was in danger and all this. And they had me, in the meantime, go in and check out the bank situation and where people were and everything and buy wigs and stuff for their disguises, (sighs) which I wasn't real happy about, but my husband and I had a situation where I was... uh, 
I didn't stand up to him very much. Right, right. And I was kind of scared not to do what he wanted me to do. So that's the way that ended. I wasn't actually involved in the bank robbery. Yeah. But they actually got away with it. (laughs) I mean, they didn't get that much money, but they got questioned. Well, I got questioned, too, by the FBI. Oh, my God. And um, they managed to just get away with it. I don't know how these bumbling idiots, but they <laughs> And they did they just do it as far as you know, just to like get some money to drink more, or was like were you guys in hard times and he was trying to? Oh, well, my my husband used the excuse that he needed to get the money so that he could get a divorce from his wife that oh. he'd been separated for years. And I believed him. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but actually, I think it was just, I don't know. They'll tell you, experts will tell you that um, a lot of times addicts will have this mindset or something that they are attracted to danger and risk. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that had something to do with it. Wow. So it was kind of like something to do that would also benefit him financially. Yeah. Good. And you were just kind of like you were his helper in a way because by default. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> well, what he what he ended up doing was we'd take the money and we somehow, I guess we must have... Uh, flown out to California or something, but we ended up going to Mexico. Wow. And, uh... Wait, you don't remember flying across the country? A lot of that. (laughs) No, I I flew back, I remember, and I remember flying to Mexico, but, I mean, a lot of that was just... (laughs) But then in Mexico, um, we almost got drowned. And he ended up losing all his money because there was this uh, woman down there that he he uh, fell in love with, sort of. Oh, my God. And, and um, so we ended up, we had a return flight, thankfully, uh-huh. from Mexico to California. And then that's why we were hitchhiking back from California, because that's as far as we could go. Because you didn't have any more money at that point. No more money. Oh, he blew uh, it all in Mexico. Yes. <laughs> he enjoyed himself, I guess. Oh, my God. Did you get I anything think... out of this as far as, like, any um, lessons learned or just, like, any interesting experiences aside from, like, what we've already talked about with the hitchhiking? Um, well, lessons learned not to believe everything you're told. Exactly. That's true. <laughs> um, but, it, I mean, it was kind of interesting. It's something It's something I wouldn't have done on my own, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> this man sounds like he was, uh, he was a whirlwind, but sometimes whirlwinds are fun to, uh like hang out with Mm. (laughs) yeah he 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 was the type of person 
that he couldn't stay married to anybody. I was his fourth or fifth wife. My goodness. Um, but he, once he got divorced, then he was friends with them. I mean, he as <laughs> just sort of a casual, you know, he was. Wow. He could be nice. Now, what about these bank robberies, or not bank robberies, but robberies that you were a part of when you were working? You told me, uh, well, or you mentioned that there were like two? Yeah, I was working in a little store, and um, there were two of us that worked up at the counter. And every afternoon, this the other person I worked with, she was like a manager or something. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she'd take off for several hours. And I'd be there by myself. And so the first time this happened, I'm there behind the counter, and these two black guys came in. And they were actually kind of nice, you know? <laughs> I mean... Hey, can we please had, have all the money in the register? Thank yeah, you. <laughs> they, had, they had guns, but they were, you know, not really belligerent or aggressive or anything. But they ended up stealing my pocketbook and uh. my keys and my medicine and all that but uh and then about a month after that two other guys came in and this manager was still doing the same thing just taking off in the afternoon and leaving me alone um <clears throat> and these other two guys came in now they were meaner <laughs> they scared me a little bit but they um you know they again took my partners but they didn't do anything to me. Did they, they take your the purse and the money from the register? Yeah. And, like, how... I don't even know what I would do if someone... Because I used to be a cashier. I... I guess I would just be like, okay, here, here's the money. Like, I wouldn't put up a fight or anything. Is that how you were? Or? Pretty much. I mean, I... <laughs> I tried not to look at them in the face too much because I don't want them to think, you know, that I could ident- identify them or anything. Yeah, that's a good thing to remember. But um, I remember one of them, I forget which it was the first ones or the second ones, but they complained because there wasn't much money in the cash <laughs> register. <laughs> And that pissed me off. <laughs> I, I said, this is a, it was a little bread store. I said, it's a little neighborhood bread store. How much money do you think's supposed to be in there? <laughs> so they, you know, they left me alone. The cops came and they wanted me to identify them and go to court or whatever. And no, I didn't want to do that. I mean, these are things that maybe it happens one of these stories in a person's life, but all of these are happening to you. And I know, I've known you for a couple years now, and like you struggle with social anxiety. Um, And these days, it's harder and harder to not have some kind of anxiety. I mean, the world is just really a messed up place. Can you think of any stories from your life um, that we haven't already talked about, like from your childhood, that may have contributed to your social anxiety? And also, if you could share any mechanisms of how you cope with your social anxiety. Because I know, I'm sure there's someone out there that's listening that probably has some sort of anxieties. 
Um, well, I, as far as I know, I've always had social anxiety. I was, um, when I was born, like when I was a year old or something, this is what, of course, I don't remember this, but people have told me. Um, the state came and took me and three sisters away from my parents because apparently they had another child who I only found out later was a twin of mine, <gasps> um, but had died of m malnutrition. Wow. And so, I mean, from that point, I was put in, like, different foster homes, and there was one foster home that was really not good people, but then the others weren't so good. And I guess I always felt like I... You know, if I didn't do just right or whatever, that they were going to come and take me and put me in maybe a, a worse foster home. Yeah. Or like the ones that I liked, they came and took me. And I remember, even now I remember how upset I was. I was just screaming because I didn't want to leave there. Um, Why did you have to leave the nice family's home? Was Because it just... they were older people, mm -hmm. and so they didn't want to leave me with an older apparently they've got something to do you know if the parents or if the people are too old um you know they don't want to leave the kids there too long or something but that's when I anyway from the uh last foster family I was with before I was adopted um <clears throat> they were pretty they they used to have these uh, interesting punishments for me. Um, they also, as a foster child, they had this um, retarded child who was, like, she was always in a high chair. Oh. And, I mean, she she didn't ever do anything wrong on purpose. Yeah. She just sat there. But any time they'd get mad at her, they wouldn't do anything to her. Um, they'd make me, like, walk around the kitchen table until I couldn't walk any longer. What? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or they'd, um, you know, put my head under the coal faucet. And just hold it there. Water torture. Uh, I don't know, but I've always had a thing about, you know, having my face covered since then. But um, they used, you know, it was, I guess, maybe if I'd understood it a little better, maybe if I'd been a little older or something, but it was just a very confusing, bad time for me. And then... Things didn't seem to get any better. I have, um, I'm told that a lot of a child's learning is, um, like up to five or six, something like that. Yeah, like by age six or seven or something. Yeah, and I had had no contact with kids other than that, you know, the retarded girl who didn't even talk. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know how to, once I was adopted, I didn't know how to associate with other kids. And so I remember making a lot 
of mistakes and doing a lot of dumb things. Um, and it just, so at a, like six or seven, I learned that if I had to meet somebody, what I would do is I would just smile. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they probably thought I was, you know, not too bright. <laughs> but it was the way I could get away with not having to talk to somebody or, you know, just smiling <laughs> and of course that didn't go over too well with other kids because you know what the hell's wrong with yeah her? why aren't you saying anything <laughs> but you were just afraid to say the wrong thing uh, yeah I mean or it got to the point where I just couldn't my mind would completely go blank I couldn't think of anything to say um and it didn't probably help that I mean you had been passed around from family to family and just basically seeking approval so you wouldn't be passed around anymore. Like, just let me stay in a stable environment. Yeah, and the people that adopted me, I found out soon after they adopted me but that the reason they had adopted me was because um, my mother's twin brother had adopted a little girl. And this is your adopted my mother? Adopt, yeah. Um, and she was a year younger than me. But they, my mother and father, for some reason, they got it in their head that they wanted this little girl. And so Whoa. what they got me for was, like, to try to make me into her, you know, as a oh. substitute for her, which didn't help matters at all. But, um, you know, so I, if I had had... I mean, I know everybody's got anxieties and everything, and it seems to me that I've I've met people who have overcome that, at least to a certain extent. They've got something uh, inside them mm-hmm. that's it, some kind of grit or, I don't know, that helps them overcome. Yeah. But I, for some reason, <laughs> I just kind of fell back the other way. So what's it like? I mean, what are some things that happen that you would say are your social anxiety? Like, what does that look like in your life? If you can describe, um, like, for example, I had, I had a situation in my life where I don't know, I honestly don't know what happened. I don't know if there was a chemical imbalance in my brain or what, but I ended up going into a really severe depression. And with the depression, I had anxiety attacks. And for me, what that manifested in in my daily life was, I couldn't go to the grocery store, and this is true story, because if I were to go and I, I wanted to get some bananas, I would stare at the bananas thinking, should I get a green one? Should I get a bunch that's, like, already ripe? Should I get them that are a little bit riper? Should I get the green ones? I don't know if I should get them ripe. And my brain would just get stuck. And I would just cry. Or I would just be completely paralyzed. And so going to the store was, like, even thinking about going to the store was like, should I go to the store? I know what's going to happen. Do I really need to go to the store? I need to go to the store. Should I go? 
And it's just like that, like this yeah, cycle. Yeah, you get stuck in this. So what's it like for you as far as your social anxiety? Well, I can really, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it makes decision-making very, very, very hard because you, you do, you, your mind gets kind of stuck. Um, jeez. <clears throat> uh, I had a thought, and I lost it. It just flew away. I remember Uh, the one time I saw you in the store, and I was, like, trying to kind of make it lighthearted and and kind of be joking, and you would not even look at me in the face. Like, you were just like, uh. No, I I live in fear of running into somebody that I know. Um, And (laughs) that's exactly what happened. I heard this voice. (laughs) <laughs> and I just said, no, don't look, don't look, don't look. <laughs> Why but do you think that is? Like, what is it where you're because, afraid of people you know? Because I'm going to be expected to say something. Mm. And I'm not going to be able to say anything. Um, you revert back to that, like, maybe not even smiling, but just like, I don't want to look. <laughs> I, I, I can't think of, I mean, my mind goes completely blank. And... My face usually, well, they've got me on more medication now, but it used to be if I'd meet somebody or go in a store, my face, I could feel, would turn bright, bright red. Wow. But, um, yeah, now I lost it again. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, what do you think are some ways... Uh, if you have any coping mechanisms, aside from, like, trying to avoid people, <laughs> is that your main mechanism? That is. When I was younger, um, well, I, it's not too many years ago. I've still done this. Um, but when somebody would come to the house, like, when I was living with my parents, even, somebody come to the house, and I would hide in a corner where I didn't think that they could see me and I wouldn't answer the door and I wouldn't answer the phone and of course most of the time I was found out and then that was embarrassing on a whole nother level but um, yeah, I don't really have coping mechanisms What about when you were working? Because you said you were like a cashier at the bread store and I think you were a cashier at a grocery store, mm. right? So how how were you able to do that at that time? Like, was there just, I mean, there was just a need to have a job, I guess, maybe. Well, there again came the smiling. Mm. Because um, at least at the grocery store, several people mentioned that I, you know, I had a wonderful smile and I seemed nice and everything but that was me coping by not having to say anything you know just smile 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 yeah so um yeah I I I used to I know I I had these um like episodes before I'd go into work where I just think about how I could get out of it basically how I, did you think you could get out of it by not going by saying I was sick by saying I died I don't know oh, I, mean. I, I can't come into work today I died actually I mean 
I just, that's basically been my coping mechanism, is trying to figure out how to get out of doing things. Yeah. Um, because is it still, I mean, I don't want to lead you uh, by questioning, but is it still like you're seeking approval? You're not sure you're going to get approval or acceptance or? Well, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to get approval. <laughs> I, I've always had the feeling and I think it's, it's a good theory. I mean, um, based on facts, <laughs> uh, that as long as I can just smile at somebody and um, and keep people at a distance, mm-hmm. it's all right. But if I start, you know, like wanting to be friends with somebody or whatever, I figure the minute they start to know me, they're not going to want anything to do with me. Hmm. Um, I mean, that's uh, my foster families and my adoptive family, and it's always, you know, been kind of proven out. Mm. So I don't think I'm going to get approval from anybody. It just, it's better to keep my distance. <laughs> yeah. It's, there's been some lessons, uh, that I've learned even in the past couple years as far as being being strong and not needing approval from others is really hard because I'm the same way. Even Gumby, you know, he's like, oh, my God, Teresa, you remind me of my mom so much. And I think I do understand a lot of, you know, what you go through and, like, your the ways that you think because I didn't have the same experiences as you, but I feel like I somehow came to the same conclusion mm. that if I'm not getting approval from someone that I'm therefore not worth anything or like I, I should just hide, like I shouldn't even exist mm. because no one's going to like me anyway, but I'm also like here. <laughs> so I can't really just hide, you know, like I can't just stand in a corner and hide. Well, you remember how long it took me before I'd even meet you. Yeah. I mean, I was scared to death. <laughs> but then somehow, I'm not sure what it was, but somehow we ended up, I feel like, maybe I'm thinking about this too much, but I feel like we ended up hitting it off at some point. Maybe it was like telling embarrassing stories. Like <laughs> I told, you know, I tell everybody all my everything. Um, so... We talked about, like, you were working at the store, and I heard that you were living in your vehicle, Mm -hmm. and I've heard that this vehicle was also, it had, like, graffiti on it, (laughs) (laughs) and this was living in your vehicle where you worked, like, in the parking lot of the store. So, first of all, I was just wondering how, like, what chain of events led to that? Like, what what was happening that you ended up living in your car? And then if you wouldn't mind, like, kind of sharing how you felt at that time and maybe also some things that you were doing, like, uh, living in your car, like, what lessons did you learn about living out of your car? 
Well, the reason... Uh, how did I come to live in my car? Um, <clears throat> well, I, I got a, a part-time job at the grocery store. And so I lost the place that I was living in. Mm. Had to move into my car. There was no other place that I knew of to park other than the parking lot. So the manager there was pretty nice. He let me park there. Um, <laughs> and there was this little, uh, I guess you could call it like an island that I parked by, mm -hmm. you know, that had a couple trees and some grass and, and, um, I, I, I asked the manager if I could plant flowers out there. In the island? Like right where, in the parking lot where there was grass and trees? Yeah, he said he didn't care. Aww. But, um, the only bad part about that, well, no, that's not the, not the only bad part, but the cops would congre congregate in that parking lot night after night after night. And they just talk and then come up and check on me and, you know, find out what the hell I was doing there. Um, and this was a small town. I mean, we're not going to say where it was, but I mean, I feel like were they harassing you? Because, of course, after the first time you talk to somebody and it seems like the manager of the store is OK with it. Why would they be like continuing to bother you I don't know I mean they never actually like arrested me or gave me a ticket or anything right they just wanted to know what are you doing here don't you have any place to go and um and it was so it was embarrassing because everybody every customer that used that store you know they'd know oh you're the one living in the parking lot aren't you oh um with your flower garden. <laughs> yeah. And I had a little set of wind chimes hanging on. No, you didn't. You yes, really did. made it into, like, your own little space. <laughs> but that, that, I learned about nice people. There was a woman that um, left a, a, a note, an envelope in my car. And I don't know who she was or anything, but it had like five dollars in it Aww. and she said you know this is five dollars use it as you want and then she mentioned what church she goes to and you know if we can help you let us know and I mean that was really nice she didn't know me at all yeah um and Gumby was living in his car so he'd come by and visit <laughs> <laughs> so you had like a car rodeo happening in the parking lot. Yeah. I go over and over to mom's, <laughs> aka the store. <laughs> and then um, the writing on the car that came along because one of his friends, one of Gumby's friends. Yeah. He, there was a bunch of them, and he was a friend to Gumby as well as others that they hang out with, and he had died. I don't know mm. how, but just as like a tribute, and don't ask me why they picked my car instead of his car, but <laughs> they wrote these things on the uh, on my car. One said pig picking, and there was, um, I think there was a needle or something. Like a hypodermic needle? On it. There oh was my all God. kinds of things, and 
it was kind of embarrassing to drive around in that. I got some questions about what's going on here. Oh, my God. Like, who questioned you about that? Um, well, National Guards. Because <laughs> some National Guardsmen drove up, and they stood there staring at me for a while, and then one of them came over and said, you know, what's the story here? I know there's got to be a story. I just told him it was my son and his crazy friends. Oh, my God. And they just did this when you, like, were at work? They just graffitied your car? I think, I think that Gumby told me they wanted to write something on there. You know, some little, I assumed it was some little thing. And then I found out it was more. <laughs> oh, my God. Gumby. <laughs> but he... He had his own problems, and he, in his car, he had somebody come along and break the window in his car while he was in it. I remember him telling yeah. that story. Did anything like that ever happen? Like, I mean, you said the police would come and check on you, but did you feel, did you feel relatively safe in your car there? Um. You must have for some point. Yeah, I mean, it was safer than any other place I knew. Mm-hmm. And what did you do, like, as far as bathing there or, like, oh. going to the bathroom or all the, you know, the typical life stuff? Yeah, well, with the bathroom, I mean, I could go into the store. Mm-hmm. And as far as cleaning up, both Gumby and I would go to, um, like, a service station downtown, and which very soon after we started using it, they bricked up the wall. The service, the bathroom just disappeared. What? Wow. And we'd go to... They really didn't like hobos. I guess not. And then we went to um, a park Uh where you have the the ladies' section and the men's. Yeah. And we used to go in there. And we were always very careful about, you know, cleaning up after ourselves. But... Then one night we showed up there, and the park, I don't know if he was actually a cop or what, but he told us we weren't allowed to go there anymore. (laughs) Oh. So um, we just did the best we could. I I had one friend that I worked with, and she used to let me come to her house every once in a while so I could use her her shower. Mm Mm-hmm. Because at that point, I mean, not to, like, talk about age or whatever, but it's not like, I mean, Gumby was, what, in his teens or, or maybe he late was, 20s? Um, not late 20s. He might have been, like, early 20s. Maybe, early 20s. Maybe. And you were, I mean, you were obviously older than that. You're his mom. So, <laughs> you're. I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is um, even though... Like, I didn't start doing this at a young age. I felt okay now starting in my life uh, to go down to, like, a creek or stream or something. Mm-hmm. But I guess that just wasn't – that maybe wasn't exactly what you were thinking of. I would have been scared to death that somebody would see me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that happens sometimes. Yeah, I've heard. <laughs> so – um, you were talking about, you know, I, I was asking you about living in your car and, you know, what led up to that. Are so, and you having like the social anxiety. So, um, 
you're like you're receiving some assistance like through programs and stuff disability and and you're also do you have uh like for for health stuff do you have coverage of some kind i get um medicaid one of those yeah one of those what is it like being on these these systems on these programs um, do you think that they help in the long run or hurt? Or what are your thoughts on that? Um, when um, when Jeff was, well, Gumby, when Gumby was um, <laughs> really young, I got um, AFDC, I think it's called, Aid for Dependent Children. Um and that gave me so I could go to the grocery store and get the milk and the cheese and things like that. Mm, I think they call, I, I'm not sure, they may have changed it, but it, now, after that, I think it was called WIC. But same yeah. thing, like women, infant, children, help. Yeah. Um, let me think. My mom was on that, too, with my brother, because my dad had lost his job. Yeah. Um And that was very, very aggravating for me. <laughs> now, I mean, because they make you go through hoops. You know, they make you come back over and over and over. And I had one worker tell me that it's because they just keep pushing you and pushing you to see how badly you need the assistance. You had to go to, like, a... Uh... What what kind of was it a like a office office or a doctor's office or what no, type of visit? It was a you know like social services like hum, like Department of yeah. Human Services or something. Um. And they, I remember one time I got so. I used to get frustrated very badly, but they um. I mean I just couldn't take any more of it. And I remember getting off the phone from them where they wanted me to go through one more hoop. <laughs> and we had this back door that had, um, you know, like six, I think it was six or nine panes of glass in it. Mm -hmm. And I just, I got off the phone and I just shoved my hands through the <gasps> back door of that glass. Um, you cut your hands on the glass then? Yeah, I got a few scars still, but... Oh, my God. I mean, it, it's just like, you know, things will build up and build up and build up, and you just explode. Yeah. Um, and to me, that was so... I mean, it's got to be just as embarrassing and frustrating for other people trying to get this, maybe even more so with if they got more kids or whatever. But, I mean, I, it seems like they ought to be able to leave you with a little bit of dignity, you know. Mm -hmm. um, that part is really, I think, unnecessary and, I don't know, bad. And plus, it gets, I think, that a lot of these... Um, social services help. Um, they give you just enough help so that you think you have a chance, mm -hmm. but not enough to actually let you get anywhere. Mm. And so that's just like constant 
you know, somebody beating you down. But then there are, I'm sure there are some cases where you really need it and you'd be, you know, like, I don't know where you'd be if you didn't get some kind of help. Mm -hmm. So I guess it depends on the circumstances. My um, my mom told me a story when she was on the women, infant, children thing with my brother that she felt so much shame having to go and get uh, like cans of uh, formula. Mm-hmm. And there was a woman that was working, the social worker, and she said, honey, <laughs> she was like, honey, if you need help, you take that help because we're giving it. Mm-hmm. So you hold your head up high and you do what you got to do for your family. And I feel like it's easy for someone to say that when they're not having to get it. Uh-uh. If you have that, like you were saying earlier, like that, that spark in you, that grit, maybe you can latch onto that and like make yourself believe that. But it is, it does seem very cyclical. Like you said, they only give you enough to, to make you think you can get out of the system, mm. but it's really never enough um, to, they, they wouldn't give you enough to get off the system because they kind of want people to be down, to be yeah. beholden. What about, um, what about now? Like any programs that you're on now, do you feel like they're, do they help? Do they hurt? Are they something good? Something well, okay? The disability that helps because I mean, I wouldn't be able to get any medicine or anything have, you know, be able to go to the doctor or anything. Um, But even that, well, I remember, like, back when I was getting AFDC, um, you go in the store and you'd want to, you'd go to use your food stamp card. Mm -hmm. Well, it didn't used to be food stamp cards. It used to be, like, these little $5 or $1 whatever pieces of paper. Mm Mm-hmm. And you'd have people behind you. <gasps> Will you hurry up? You know, oh, she got food stamps. Mm. Oh, it's awful. But um, like I say, the Medicaid helps now. Um, I don't get food stamps because I feel like there are other people that probably need the food stamps more than I do. But uh, yeah, it's still embarrassing every time send you a form that you have to fill out or, you know, <laughs> but it's, it's not as bad as it was. Either that or I'm just more used to it. I don't know. Yeah. I've heard that, um, you've, you've, you're still like having to jump through hoops as far as, you know, getting, any medications that you need or doctor's visits? Can you tell a little bit more about that? Um, well, you can't change doctors. You can't change pharmacies. Um, and if they do a lot of experimenting with different drugs with you because um, they might prescribe one kind of medicine for you, but if the pharmacy that you're using doesn't have that, then they either have to change it or, you know. So I never even know what medicines I'm on, really. I've got so many. Oh, my God. Um, 
What was was there a time when um, they were doing some sort of surgery and they invited like all the students in to come watch that? Oh, well, <laughs> I used to have pancreatitis, chronic pancreatitis. I'd end up in the hospital like every month or so, and of course. <laughs> Being around people and people I didn't know and people just stand there staring at me. It, <laughs> Not helpful. <laughs> the hospital that I went in was like a, a, a learning hospital. Like a teaching hospital. Yeah. And um, so they, yeah, the doctor would come in every morning and check me over and bring, I don't know, anywhere from just a couple to five or six people with him and I used to ask him please can you you know just not bring so many people in with you yeah um but that's what they do they did it anyway yeah so overall do you think it's kind of do you think it's similar to what you were going through with the the child like when when Gumby was young and you were going into the store and using like the food stamps do you feel it's kind of the same with the Medicaid and well it's the same in that people even people that should know better to them it's still you know oh she's on Medicaid she's on this she's on that we can just experiment with her yeah it's just um you know they don't take anything that might be wrong with you or any problems they don't take it seriously course you never know what they charge you know when they send into the Medicaid department or whatever you never know what they say that they're giving you that they're not or how much you know you're being charged whatever wow well I'm going to ask you this question it's um you take it however what direction you want it's a question that you know. I gave it no surprises. So, you seem to be a person that keeps oh. stuff. <laughs> like, you would be prepared for just about anything at any time. Good thing. Some, some people may consider this hoarding. Um, <laughs> can you think of any time in your life, any time, like when you were growing up or whatever, that shaped that habit? Like for my grandma, for example, she grew up during the Great Depression and she also hoarded like everything from empty Cool Whip containers to rubber bands to, you know, paper plates, like everything that she thought she might need, she just kept it, Mm -hmm. whether or not it actually made sense. So is there any story behind how this came about for you? Because I mean, obviously you've gone through some stuff. (laughs) <laughs> is there anything in particular that you think might have contributed? Well, I, um, maybe from, you know, my earliest memories, uh, because I know going from foster home to foster home, I had like one bag or something, um, that held all my belongings and, like, I remember there's one foster family, and I had no belongings except for for toys. I had, I don't know if you remember this, but um, clothespins that didn't have a spring. Yeah. But they were just. Yeah. 
Um, I had a couple of those and an empty Marlboro box <laughs> for my toys. <laughs> and, I mean, I treasured those. Oh. But, uh, you know, you, you try to hang on to what you got because you don't have much. And, and then, I guess, after that, when I was adopted, my parents, like I used to collect dogs, you know, like glass dogs. Mm -hmm. Like little figurines? Yeah. And I had a lot of them because I, I always loved dogs. Mm -hmm. And um, I know one time my parents... To punish me, my father broke all my glass dogs. What an asshole! And well, my ex-husband did too. But, mm. um, but then, when I got with my ex-husband, well, my husband, um, we moved around all the time mm -hmm. because he'd, you know, start out with a job and then. He'd lose his job, and with the drinking, he'd, money'd be gone and everything. And we'd move to a different place, and we'd move to a different place. And every time we moved, I used to have to leave a lot yeah. behind, almost everything behind. And um, I think, t to my way of thinking, I just, you know, I didn't want to give up anything anymore. Because... It, it, yeah, you do think, well, the minute I get rid of it, I'm going to want it mm -hmm. or I'm going to need it. So I got to the point where I just didn't want to get, get rid of anything. So I got to that point where I'd hold on to everything, all kinds of junk. Because you've been here out in the country like 20 years. Yeah. So this has been probably the most stable time of your life. I don't know if you call it stable, but yeah, it's been the <laughs> longest in one place. And so, I'm not sure, like, I, I get it. I totally get keeping things, especially things that are, um, like, there's some sort of, like, memory attached mm -hmm. to it. Or there's, like, something that you're just, like, I know it's silly to keep this, like, torn sweater or something, but I just can't let it go. Uh -huh. And that seems, I mean, a lot of people have that going on. And I can get like, if you've been basically moving around and kind of forced to be a minimalist because you can't carry everything with you mm. where it might like kind of uh -huh. boomerang to the <laughs> other side where it's like, well, now I can just keep everything. How, like, uh, how does that, like, how does that, um, does that, I guess it makes you feel okay to do that, right? Or is there some other feelings attached to the keeping of stuff? I don't think it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I... It's not like a coping mechanism or anything? It's embarrassing to me to... Mm be that way but um I don't know it's just like like Gumby he's a minimalist mm -hmm. and I think 
he's on one end and I'm on the other end. And it's, I think a lot of it has to do with our common experiences, which is, you know, moving around all the time and having to get rid of this and get rid of that. And um, so he just said, you know, I don't want all that junk. It hurts. And, and, and I said, you know, no, I'm going to, you know, what if I need a piece of yarn? I might as well keep that sweater or something. <laughs> you know, I mean. For the yarn in the sweater, you're <laughs> yeah. going to keep the sweater that's all old and probably never use that yarn. No, probably never will. It's hard to have attachments to things because if you're, if you do get rid of it, not only is it something in your head that's like, oh, darn it, I, you know what, I could have used that, but it also hurts. Mm. Like, I have felt actual, like, it's almost as if someone has died when you get rid of something, especially something that you really treasure. Yeah. Whereas with Gumby, a lot of the things he has are things that he's scavenged or sometimes things that have been given to him. And I, I do feel like he has a harder time getting rid of things that were given to him or that he's bought in the past, mm. like his um, field guides. Mm. When we were, you know, leaving the trailer, moving into the van 100%, he got rid of a lot of stuff that I, even when I got rid of my storage unit, he got rid of a lot of his field guides that he's like, man, that stings a little bit, yeah. you know, but I recognize that if I really need something, I can always get it. Like, in other words, I can go to the library or I can go online and look it up. Or if I really need to buy it, I can probably buy it again. If I really want to. And you know how Gumby is with money. So he's like probably not going to buy it again. But if he did, you know, if he wanted to. So, yeah, that. Uh, it's hard. And you, but you say like it's also like embarrassing, too. So it's just interesting that like. I guess I don't want to get too much more into this, but like, how do you feel when you throw stuff out? Like there's never a feeling of good that's always like dread or do you ever feel like there's a good feeling associated with it? Like getting rid of something? Not really. I mean, I know there should be, but, um, I don't know. I can throw things out that I've had for 20, 30 years and I, I, it's not a good feeling. What about the embarrassment? Like, is there more feelings of, like, not good throwing it out or more feelings of embarrassment for keeping it? Like, which one's stronger? I guess the embarrassment. Now, that's interesting. Because <laughs> um, if the embarrassment is stronger, well, you notice I don't let anybody into my house. <laughs> um, so the embarrassment is something that you can like, kind of, keep out of most people's view, like so that you're not embarrassed, so that you also don't have to feel the pain of throwing it out. Mm. Dang. I know I've thought before that maybe maybe part of it is 
keeping, you can call it what you want, I guess I call it mess, um, <laughs> uh, is a way of, a way of keeping distant from people, because mm. I'm not going to let anybody in there, and, um, nobody's going to want to come in if, you know. I'm not sure where to go with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, the things that are painful like that or things that are, like, embarrassing like that, it's really hard to know what to do. I was just I was just exploring it since we're doing an interview. But, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting insight. Because at one time, too, you were thinking, I, I think I heard that you were thinking about cleaning up in case we needed to come in to like use the bathroom or whatever but but then it was like well we'll we'll just work around if you could give advice to yourself as a child as a younger Nancy what would it be um I think I would tell that person, well, I hope I'd get them at a very early age, <laughs> um, and I'd tell them, don't let fear um, rule your life. Don't let fear rule your life? Yeah, because everything that I've done is... It's been because of fear, like, um, well, I'm a procrastinator, mm. and a lot of that is because, like, in school, I was always afraid to get up in front of the class and afraid to be wrong and afraid of this and afraid of that, mm -hmm. and most of my experiences in life... I've followed, like with my husband, mm -hmm. I, I followed his lead. He was, I was going to say he was 36 years older than me. Not that bad. <laughs> um, he was 16 years older than me. And, you know, I never would do, I never would do hardly anything if it was left up to me because I'd be too afraid. Mm. And so I haven't taken chances. I, uh, you know, I haven't taken this job or that job or gone to this school or that school or had any adventures on my own. And so I'd, I'd tell my younger self, don't let fear hold you back. Mm. You know, don't be afraid to take risks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably. Because the fear is, I mean, for you, is like messing up. Or actually being confronted with something that may not be what you like, right? May not be something that you're feeling good about. Like it's always like an aversion. Like 
I don't want to meet these people because then I'm going to have to talk. And I don't want to talk because I might mess up. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really good advice. And even for me, you know, I I find myself, you know, like, you know, we I said Gumby talks about I'm very much like <laughs> you. And I I consider myself a follower in a lot of ways, too. But I also look at it like I'm also an observer. Mm-hmm. I'm also a learner. Like I am experiencing life. I might not have decided to go hitchhiking had it not been for Gumby. But at the same time, I, I did it. And you might not have decided to go hitchhiking yourself, but you did it. Whether or not <laughs> it was it was like completely, you know, you were agreeing to it, but it was an experience that you had. So I really think that that's awesome that you had that experience. Even if you feel like it was, you were following your husband mm. or your soon to be husband. Um, yeah. Uh, Why? Well, you haven't let fear hold you back though. I mean, like you've been to, I think it's Nepal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have been to Nepal. <laughs> Well, but that I really mean, is a pretentious thing for me to talk about. But, I mean, you've had experiences. You haven't let your fear hold you back totally like I have. I think, and, and obviously this isn't my interview, but for me, I've gotten to that point, I think that you're talking about with like the, I don't know if it's grit for me, but it's almost anger. It's mm. like, you know what? You have one life. I have one life. And if I don't live it, I'm going to, I'm going to regret not doing this. And I can sit here and, and be in that cycle of like not being able to make a decision until I die, Mm. but I'm just going to do it. And if I die, then I die. Like I actually, when I went to Nepal, I was, I felt like I died a little bit. I felt like the old Teresa went away and then there was this new life starting. Mm. And maybe there are echoes of old Teresa that come up, especially with fear. I wouldn't necessarily say that I don't have fear. It's just I think I'm occasionally I just kind of free fall. Mm. I just kind of am like, well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I'm just going to jump off this rock Mm. into four feet of water. (laughs) Like it's a big deal. Like it's jumping off a bridge or something. It's like kids do this. Why can't I do this? And, you know, it's, it seems like I need to be pushed to that point, And I guess I do, but then I make the decision to do it. So it's, it's really good advice. It is really good advice. Was there anything else that you wanted to share? I, I just think you've had such an interesting life. And I mean, all these different things that have happened to you that we've talked about. Is there anything else that you want to share before we sign off? Why did that come to mind? (laughs) I just, (laughs) I had a thought of um, when I was in grade school, and we had these, uh, I don't know, you'd hold on to a handle, and this thing would go around like that. Was it in a circle? Like, people would, like, push it and push it and push it? Well, you, I mean, you'd be running, but 
No, nobody would actually push it. I don't know what it was called. But anyway, <laughs> the thing that came to mind was, oh, I used to want to be an Indian. <laughs> and <laughs> Like a indigenous, like a Native yes. American? When I was a kid, for some reason, I wanted so badly to be a Native American. I used to run around the... <laughs> This is another one of those things that people thought were just kind of weird. <laughs> I used to run around and go, ooh, and you know. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> well, with that, <laughs> I think we'll call it a great interview. And I appreciate your time, and I thank you so much, Nancy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Woo. That was uh, some true Frost-Nixon interviewing there that I did, and uh, you could tell at the end, Nancy's <laughs> medications are kicking in. You can tell where I get some of my political incorrectness from. Oh, my God. Uh, so, yeah, so I had a blast interviewing Nancy. Um, yeah, I was trying to remember after I, after I stopped recording, then she opened up even more details, and I was like, damn, I should write that stuff down, but then I totally forgot. But she, I think she, she talked something about she thought maybe you uh, – got the idea in your head about being a hobo because you spent so much time outside. Hmm? Just kind of unstructured time. Partly. And uh, evidently, I am a psychopath that laughs at everything uh, unfortunate in a person's life, including Nancy's childhood water torture. But I do want to give you credit. Like, that was a really good interview. I loved how conversational you were. Yeah, thank you. Um I just felt also like, 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 wow. Um, Nancy's life, you know, maybe that could be anybody. I mean, the hell, that could be me. Gumby said it <laughs> more than once. If you don't change the way you look at things. Um, but I think something that's positive and, and really good to remember is that, she, that Nancy recognizes, you know, like if, if she could go back and talk to her younger self, like, don't be afraid of anything. Don't, don't feel like you have to fear so much because it, uh, it can definitely close doors. Yeah. And, you know, like I reached out to a lot of people that share like, uh, points of view that are very different from mine. And I've gotten a few people, usually people that kind of agree with me about most things to agree to interviews. And like I said, we got a couple recorded. I've been really, uh, disappointed that like people have not like you know extreme different points of views that represent recycling or liberalism i'm really hoping i can get like more dialogue going with these people because i think that'll be really interesting you know to be able to ask them like harder questions i I get frustrated when i hear interviews and they're just fluff pieces and i'm like man why did why didn't they ask that so uh hopefully more of that will happen, and I feel like, um, I don't know, I kind of feel like all of our opinions are sort of houses of cards, and we're, like, really insecure about them, hmm. and so we don't want to be questioned. We're terrified somebody will ask us 
uh, questions that we don't want to ask ourselves and the whole house of cards falls apart and we're like, wow, our philosophy actually doesn't work. And uh, yeah, I feel like we need to knock down some of these houses of cards, you know, get asked those hard questions. Um, Don't be afraid if you're not in agreement with someone because it doesn't have to lead to a fist fight. You just have differences of opinion. Yeah. And that's part of that fear. I feel like my mom was talking about, you know, living in fear, living, living in fear that somebody's going to expose you. Like if there's something that needs to be exposed, drag that shit into the light, you know, talk about the blood on your toilet paper. Talk about how you take a shit. You know, this is your fucking experience. And if you need to hide it away, you need to look at the way you're living. Um, and I'm really excited to get more interviews with elders, especially people older than me, because these people are getting older. Um, they're eventually going to die. You know, all of us are eventually going to die. And recording their stories, their points of view, I mean, they have memories, um, physical memories of their own, not just what gets taught to us through the media and the television, of what these time periods were like. And I hope to get more of that recorded. Um, and I was really excited to get this interview with my mom because I remember I took a, a class at the Tom Brown's Tracking Nature and Wilderness Survival School, and it was a, a coyote teaching class. And he made a list of all these things that are important for a coyote teacher to remember. And one of them that really spoke to me that stayed in my head is remember where you come from. Mm-hmm. And, man, that changed that changed me that day, I feel like, because after that, it's like, I don't want to hide where I came from. I don't want to hide that I've been in jail. I don't want to hide that I smoked crack. I don't want to hide that, you know, these are my parents and this is what we've been through. This is what I have to share. This is what makes me, if I have anything unique and special, this is it. And so, you know, hearing my mom's interview reminds me of that. Like, remember where you fucking come from, you know, the food stamps, everything, because this is part of you. Either a reaction to it or a continuance and building upon it. And and living like you're like telling a story or, you know, don't just, oh, what's what's going to be at the end of most people's lives? It's like, well, for about 40 or 50 years, I, uh, I went to work. You know, I always had stories when I was working. My, my family, I think, delighted in hearing my tales. I don't know, maybe they were humoring me. But, <laughs> but the point being, I guess I've kind of always had a penchant for storytelling and kind of uh, blowing things up that were just so maybe such a slight thing in someone's life. But I like make this whole story around it that's entertaining. And uh, I'm not saying everyone has to be full of drama. I'm just saying if you are going to be one of those people, like if we were to interview you as you age, are you just going to be like, yeah, I don't really have anything to share? (laughs) Yeah, that's actually something else Tom Brown once taught in a class that stuck with me is... uh, Start keeping a journal and uh, think, of, think of it as you write in this journal, like, are you living a life? Are you making a story that you would want to share? Hmm. And I felt like that was a powerful uh, question. Yeah. And did you have anything else that you wanted to say about the, <laughs> the interview? Nope. Just uh, I'm really thankful that my mom uh, did that. That's not like, you know, it's not her character to really... Uh, be social or like, you know, say yes to an interview. I uh, kind of bullied her into it. But yeah, I'm still <laughs> thankful she did it. So thanks, mom. Yeah. Thank you, Nancy. And um, yeah, I was definitely really happy that she agreed to do that. So now I'm going to read a listener right in. And this is Eric from Livingston, Texas. Now, Eric listens, He's he listens to a lot of our podcasts. And this one was from 
our podcast, Fire Trucks Given. And Gumby, I think you mentioned something about growing up in a kind of... Yeah, we were saying a fuck you to slobs. <laughs> so Eric from Texas says, I grew up in a dirty, unkept, dysfunctional house myself. I hate when I see that kind of dysfunction in others. Oh, I'm starting to sound like George W. Bush. <laughs> uh, he was from Texas. It's another form of inconsideration towards others. My father was pretty abusive as well. And that's from Fire Trucks Given. And, uh, Eric, we appreciate you writing in and and commiserating and, and sharing your thoughts on the episodes. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's a whole different way of growing up. Yeah, I think it's really important to, like, talk to our parents if your parents are still alive. My dad's dead, and, man, I really wish my dad was alive that I could interview him. I mean, what a crazy fucking life. So if your parents are alive, like, you know, finding some way to talk to them, because how you grew up, where you came from, that never leaves you. You know, that shapes you. That's who you are right now. Um, those early observations, those early experiences. So I really appreciate, Eric, you sharing your uh, part of your early experiences, because I'm sure growing up in a dysfunctional household with an abusive father just still informs almost every worldview you have. So, yeah. Yeah, that just reminded me real quick of, uh, what was that, check-in or mile, mile marker 70 that we just recorded? Yeah, that was mile marker 70. And we were, we were talking about... Um, like connections that are that are being lost and severed by the powers that be. Whoopsie. Okay. And uh, <laughs> that includes family ties. You know, just not even talking to your family. Like, what kind of what kind of tribe are we trying to build if we don't even talk to the tribe we're born into? So yeah. So um, just remember that. Consider that. And if you have any um, comments that you'd like to share, any questions or um, yeah, anything like that, please visit our website, escapingsociety.weebly.com, and we have our comment form right there on the homepage. You can also see our YouTube channel and Facebook page from our website, and we also have a donate button, um, and we appreciate all of your write-ins as well as your donations, both.